but when, when I was in seventh grade, uh, we had a, a group assignment in our, in our Texas history class. I'm, I'm from, I'm a Tomball native, and so I, I went to the Klein schools here, and we had, in seventh grade, Texas history, and we had uh, a teacher who really loved Texas. She was, and that's a good thing. I mean, like, Texas proud. Like, I'm, I'm definitely there, too. But she was gushing about this book that she recently read, which was new at the time. It was called Forget the Alamo. And it was kind of a historical what-if story. What if William B. Travis and the brave men that, that fought at the Alamo had, had chosen a different fort? What if they had gone somewhere that was maybe a little smaller, maybe a little bit more manageable? It was kind of a historical fiction novel that, that was kind of presented as an alternative take. What could have happened if they went to uh, a mission called Mission Concepcion, which is smaller and maybe a little bit more defensible? Anyway, she was gushing about it. I was a seventh grader, and I was like, all right. And, and she goes, so what I want you all to do is, is come up with your own historical kind of fiction alternate what-if story about Texas history. You can pick any of the characters. You can do whatever. And, and so basically, she told us, we were, in, we were a gifted class, by the way. I say that not to brag. I say that to say when you tell kids in seventh grade that they're smart, they just become smart Alex. And she gave us almost no other parameters but to be like, hey, this is, this is Texas history, and you, know, you can make up anything. And, and so, like, ours, like, Davy Crockett was like an alien, and it had UFOs in it, and, and uh, <laughs> James Bowie, this was good, he, like, went to China so that he could be healed, like, and would survive, you know, instead of dying, being sick. Uh, and we were like, this is great, this is going to be so fun. And, and ultimately, all of the groups kind of took that tongue-in-cheek, because she wasn't like, this is for a grade, this is, you know, she just kind of said, let's do this, take 20 minutes. And so we all, we all went around and kind of just goofed off during that 20 minutes. And then as we're coming time to present, here's where it gets a little dicey. Each group had not really taken it seriously, and, and we were one of the last groups to go. But each group told their story, and she was getting more and more upset with us as, as time went on. Um, and you could kind of see it in her eyes. She was kind of disappointed that we weren't taking it seriously, and, Right before our group is about to go, she finally loses it. And it was not an outburst in anger. It was much, much worse. She started crying. We had made our teacher cry because we didn't take a fun assignment seriously. And through the sobs, she explained that she had only wanted to do something fun. She was just disappointed that none of us were, were taking this, this seriously. And, and we're all kind of like shooting looks at each other. I don't know. Um, we felt bad, you know, and she kind of collected herself and, and she was like, okay, group five, I'm sure yours. And we're like, remember, we're, we're alien Davy Crockett. We're like, we're like tied with like the, the other worst one. Uh, and, and so we all kind of inch away from the girl that's like presenting for our group, you know, and so she, she starts to go and luckily she doesn't lose it again, but she just kind of waves her hand and, and, and stops, stops our, our group. And she's like, okay. This project has now become a homework assignment. It is now a major grade. Everyone will do this project tonight by yourself, and you will present individually tomorrow. Let me tell you, I went home, and I, like, researched Fanon and, like, tried to figure out what I could do to make up a cool historical fiction alternative take because I was like, I felt bad. I felt ashamed, and I was being punished for it, rightly. At first, I was ashamed because I was complicit in all of the behavior that, that was getting us in trouble, and I made my teacher cry. Uh, and 
I hadn't said, you know, guys, maybe we should take this more seriously. She probably wants like something more like the book that she was just talking about. I didn't do that. I was just like, this is hilarious. Let's give them antenna that come out, you know. And more than that, uh, what I had done uh, was was part of a group. And the whole group had been so. I was I was I was not only guilty myself. I was guilty by association. Even before our group had presented, I was like, oh, this is me too. Like I'm I'm part of this. And and now looking back with adult eyes on the situation, she probably should have given us some more parameters. That would have that would probably helped. Um, but our teacher wasn't really prone to these kind of outbursts. She wasn't an overly emotional lady. So I, I'm left to conclude as an adult, there was probably something else going on in that day that I was not privy to, and she was having a bad day already, and we just made it worse. Um, and I remember that being one of the first times that I was like, oh my gosh, my teacher's a human person with feelings. You know, as a, sorry, that's a lot of seventh graders think. Uh, they just kind of don't equate that, and you're still learning empathy. And I remember being like, ah, oh, I just feel so terrible. Felt ashamed. Uh, and my punishment, my suffering that I would endure was, was right. It was, um, so today's text kind of flips that on its head. And, and uh, this kind of shame and punishment that, that exists in my story were warranted, but I'm going to present a different what-if story. What if my whole class had done everything right, and yet it still upset my teacher, and we were still assigned a harsh punishment? Many of us would say that, well, that's, that's an injustice. What if she said, you should be ashamed of yourselves when we had nothing to be ashamed of? And that what-if scenario describes the Bible. This text this, this morning from Second Timothy, because we are children of God who are called to suffer for something that is good. We are called to suffer for the gospel. So let's open our Bibles to Second Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 10. We're going to read the whole text this morning. This is where we'll be. Says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been abolished, or has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The word of our Lord to us this morning. Now, you will remember from, uh, from last week that, that Stuart kind of had exhorted us from, from verses 6 and 7 not to be afraid uh, to answer hard questions about our faith, but to fan the flame of the, the gift of God that, that's in us. That was the end of, of last week's passage. And he talked about that fear being not a righteous, reverent fear of God, but a, a fear like cowardice, where we are afraid of the consequences of of our faith. And uh, fear and shame are, are closely linked, and, and Paul knows this too, because he immediately launches into verse 8 and says, therefore, don't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. And for any of you that have, that have learned Bible study methods, you know when there's a therefore, the question you ask is, what's the therefore, therefore? Let me put that one in your back pocket if you didn't know that. You ask what it's there for, and, and, and you, you backtrack immediately to verses 6 and 7, and you realize we're not to be afraid of the gift that God has given us, and neither should we be ashamed of the testimony that the Lord 
has given us that brings us this gift. So Paul's saying, don't be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, which is the gospel. It is the good news. And this echoes one of Paul's other letters, uh, the letter of Romans in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So in a vacuum, the statements are very similar, and that's good. It shows that Paul's consistent, shows the Bible is consistent about this idea. But if we look deeper at the context of each one, we know that Paul is writing to the Romans in this one, uh, and he's writing from relative safety in Corinth during his second missionary journey. He's, he is, uh, it's about 10 years before Paul is writing 2 Timothy, and we, we learned in our intro week that Paul is writing 2 Timothy from prison as he awaits a death sentence. And so he's, he's saying one thing 10 years earlier, and now he is sentenced because of the gospel. So it's, it's, it's still his tune hasn't changed. He says, don't be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. So now he's telling his apprentice, hey, you've seen it in my life. I've never been ashamed, even though I'm now in prison. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. And Timothy may have been embarrassed that, that, that some of the mockers and scoffers that would have been in his day saw Jesus uh, as no more than a dead guy. Right? That, that would be the main argument. Like, no, he didn't. He didn't rise from the grave. He was just some weird martyr, Jewish martyr, a lost cause from, from decades ago. That's, that's what people would say. And Timothy may have wanted a more powerful vindication of the Christian message for others to see as he proclaimed the gospel and didn't have it. He had the story that he had been told by others at this point. And, and Paul calls attention, I think, to what we are all thinking. So not, not only did I not see Jesus the way you did, Paul, but you're now in jail for testifying about him. You're suffering for it. So he, he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel, nor me, his prisoner. So this is the same testimony that I'm telling you not to be ashamed of that I'm in jail for. And, and, and Timothy could have also been humiliated that his leader was now a prisoner. This very gospel, this powerful gospel, just ends up with people being put in prison. You think back to the story in my history class, guilt by association is a powerful feeling, e- even if, it's, even if the, the association is, is true. We're, we all inched away from our presenter because she was saying things that we all came up with um, and, and we were associated with, and it wasn't going well. So think of, think of Peter and his association with Christ in the days of the crucifixion. Three different times, within earshot, within eyeshot of Jesus, People ask him, do you know this guy? And each time he says, no. Like, who asked him? Was it a centurion? Was he, you know, no, it was a little girl. <laughs> hey, do you know him? He's like, no, 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 I don't know him. And, and each time, until finally he makes contact with, eye contact with his, his king from afar, and immediately he crumples. He begins to weep and runs away. These are, these are real fears that people who knew Jesus in his life had, even then. And so Paul is coming to Timothy and saying, don't do this. Not, not because it could never happen, because it can and did happen. Now Peter would eventually regain his nerve, and he would end up repenting, and he would end up in prison and jail in the book of Acts. But I, I point out his early denial to show you the real stakes of this. 
this is not something that only happens to Bible characters. This is something that's presented before Timothy as, as something that is a very real threat to all of us. We may be put in a situation where identifying with Jesus will make us guilty by association. But interestingly, Paul, who, whose prisoner does he say he is? Caesar's? Rome's? No. He says he is the Lord's prisoner. Look at the text. He says, nor of me his prisoner. His being the Lord. The testimony about our Lord, nor me his prisoner. His view of God is that his present suffering and his association with Christ are not separate. Paul knows that his suffering and his relationship to Christ are intrinsically linked. Paul is ultimately under submission of God himself. And he knows if God wanted him to be free, then he'd be free. And we see this understanding in his exhortation to Timothy in the second part of verse 8. He says, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And this phrase, share in suffering, is kind of where we're camping this morning. You saw the title of the sermon is embrace suffering. We don't mean embrace like you walk into any, any suffering or any challenge, but when suffering inevitably comes, you, gl- you grab onto it and you cling to it. And we'll get to why. And that, that phrase seems foreign to Western Christian ears, no doubt. It, it does to mine as well. Uh, this phrase will, will continue to serve as our main idea this morning. And I want to show you that this is not a solitary idea just from this passage. And so to do that, we're going to, we're going to look through a couple of scriptures. First, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in what? In Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And elsewhere within this epistle, 2 Timothy, Paul states even more clearly that this isn't a unique opportunity for some, not just pastors, not just Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.12 he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is that clear for us? So obviously this is replete throughout the works of Paul. What about the other apostles? Do they speak differently about suffering? Look at 1 Peter 4.19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We actually are entrusting ourselves to God's will when we suffer for the gospel. We're saying, God, your gospel's true, so if I'm going to suffer for it, I'm, I'm trusting that that's what you want us to do. I'm trusting that that is in your will. And remember, 1 Peter was written to the church during a time of intense persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. People were being burned alive. They were being crucified by the hundreds. They were lighting his gardens for his parties as people being burned at the stake. And he's telling you, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Because you're suffering according to God's will. And then... The Apostle Paul says this in first, I mean, the Apostle John says this in his epistle, in his first epistle. He says, Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John was an apostle who, according to tradition, was sentenced to be boiled alive in oil. 
but he survived so they could write the book of Revelation. These men seem to be at odds with some of the other teachings that we hear often today in the guise of being Christian. And you know what? It makes me wonder if God really wants every day to be a Friday. Or how about this one from T.D. Jakes that was just last week on Twitter. It says, if you obey God, you will never be broke another day in your life. I wonder how much money Paul had while he was in prison writing this very epistle awaiting his death sentence. You guys think he was broke? I think he might have been broke. Or what about Joyce Meyer's gem from a conference last year? If you stay in your faith, you're going to get paid. Meanwhile, over in real Christianity... Coptic Christians are being beheaded on the beach by ISIS. Do you think they got paid for staying in their faith? Not the kind of payment Joyce Meyer is talking about. Don't miss this this morning, church. These false teachers are spreading a lie that it's easy to believe, and it's one that's so easy to believe here in America because we already enjoy such comfortable lives. We're in the wealthiest country in the world. So God must want us to have that. That must be part of his plan. But any riches that we have because, are just because we were born providentially in America. And they're not rewards for faithful obedience, and they won't always be here. The Christian life does not promise us riches in this life. They may be there, they may not. And we are to receive them as blessings when they come. But they're not promised. What is promised is persecution. And this persecution is to be treated as a blessing as well. Jesus himself is at the root of this truth. In Matthew 5, 11, and 12, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, guilt by association. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution because of Jesus, is a given. Christ himself tells us so. And he tells us to rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Earthly riches aren't there. But the heavenly reward is, and Jesus has promised. So now that we know that this is a very biblical idea, let's get back to our text this morning. We know Paul has encouraged Timothy not to be ashamed and to embrace the kind of suffering that only comes with the testimony of our Lord. So now let's look back on that word testimony a little bit more closely. In the Greek, the word is a word uh, that's called marturion, and uh, it says it's translated really well in the ESV uh, as the word testimony. Some translations might, might say it as a witness, uh, although that would probably be a more archaic term, but both kind of carry that, that legal sense where if you were called to court as a witness to testify, so you are standing and giving an account that is true. That's, that's the idea. And so, importantly, uh, the same marturion here that means testimony is also a word that we transliterate in English as martyr. Um, and so, the word is, is, we understand martyr as somebody that dies for, for some sort of cause, some sort of belief. But the word is uniquely Christian. Um, it originates right here in texts like this, because martyrs are witnesses. They are ones who testify about Jesus Christ. The word testimony becomes quickly in the Christian faith synonymous with Christian suffering. 
So when Paul mentions not to be ashamed of the testimony here in the gospel and the suffering linked to it, later Christians would begin to see the ultimate testimony of the gospel as being killed, just as Christ was killed. That's something that we all kind of want to recoil from and be like, well, I can't be the ultimate testimony. I thought I just had to stand up and say how I got to know Jesus, say how I trusted in him. One of the earliest known church fathers, um, church fathers are just the guys that came right after the apostles, a guy named Ignatius who was a bishop of the church in Antioch, the same Antioch that we read about in Acts. Um, he, uh, we know from his writings that he was martyred uh, for his faith. We know that it was by the Romans, likely around AD 108, so very early, very close to the time of, of the apostles. And uh, here's what he wrote in another letter to a church father. He said, now I begin to be a disciple. This is, this is right before his death. He said, now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. How? How do people begin to think this way? And I'll be honest, as I prepared this week, I was, I was continually challenged by this command to share in the suffering of the gospel. I was like, you know, it's, it's not normal. It's not normal to embrace any kind of suffering. Uh, suffering is, is universally perceived as negative. And different t- types of suffering, the devastation that we saw in Harvey, illness, you know, cancer, those things, we don't embrace those. We know that God gives us the power and that through those trials, we can have joy. But are we called to grab onto those? By no means. Those are from the fall. But here, Paul's saying, share in it. Jesus is saying, it's a blessing. Rejoice in it. How? How can we? Well, luckily, the answer is at the end of the verse. It says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 